Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone welcome back to podside picnic uh if i were a radio dj today i'd be saying something along the lines of it's another hot one out folks because where i am it's very hot so forgive me i uh (laughs) gave myself a little heat exhaustion walking home in a hurry to record this episode um (laughs) and i'm back once again by the way uh with the inimitable pete uh, and you know, being being hot and sweaty is appropriate for this episode because it's about a book that is set predominantly in the deep south. Um, and that book is yet another departure from strict genre fiction for us. It is the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which won, I believe, when it came out in 2017. I want to say I think it won, uh, it definitely won both the Pulitzer and the National Book Award uh, when it came out, which is an extremely rare double whammy of the two biggest American literary prizes. Colson Whitehead was a well-established writer before that. He does, uh, broadly he's classified as literary fiction. To be sure, almost all of his, most of his work has some kind of speculative element to it, including his debut, The Intuitionist, uh, and a few other, and there's several others. Um, and Underground Railroad was his biggest hit, and essentially it's an alternate history about slavery in the U.S. where the Underground Railroad is a literal rail system underground running through southern states to the north. And a bunch of southern states, they all have different approaches to segregation and slavery, and the characters kind of tour through that. And I will warn you now, as you might have guessed based on the subject matter, this is a dark novel. Is that a fair statement, Pete? Oh, it's 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 Octavia Butler level gloomy. And I mean, and fair enough. I mean, we're talking about slavery here. Like if it was cheery, this would be an extremely creepy episode. You know, I think this is a good point to say, like, you know, there's just aspects of this novel, uh, a, a novel by a, a well-known black writer about slavery. There's aspects of it that, you know, Pete and I Probably not. Probably certainly can't ex- access and won't try to because uh, of the ways that our backgrounds limit us epistemologically. But yeah, it's about it's sort of a it's sort of an epic, sort of a speculative epic about race in America and a lot of the states they travel through. I think it's fair to say are allegories for different approaches to racial division and segregation and some in some some places that they that they spend time. There's like so-called enlightened attempts at segregation in some places. It's very, very grim, uh, <laughs> homicidal approaches, and it kind of it, it starts with a classic plantation that's historically recognizable, and the characters escape and travel through different scenarios. Um, we really can't do this book justice, probably in a short episode, because it is again, it's, it's it was been a, it's had a huge impact in recent years. It made Whitehead really one of, if not the most, like well. Probably not quite the most, but he's definitely one of the most revered 
magisterially established uh, American novelist now. Um, and I will say for full disclosure, I've met Colson Whitehead. He came to my family's house for dinner one time. Uh, very nice down to earth guy. I guess that gives me a bias in his favor, but he, uh, he's a good dude and I really admire him as a writer. He's definitely a contemporary writer I look up to and I'm rambling now. I think before we dive in here, um, this is an example of me, me getting Pete to read literary fiction that kind of intersects with what we're doing. Pete, like, what did you make of this broadly? That's kind of an unfair question, but what did you think about all this? Yeah, well, um, well, for, first, I, I do need to take a second and point at the elephant in the room, which is it, uh, it, it would be very difficult for me to talk about disliking this because it's it's a it's a prize winning book about a subject that absolutely needs to be taken seriously. Fortunately, I did like it because I, I'd hate to have to make that choice on the pod. Like, am I am I just going to act like it wowed me? But um, the writing is amazing. Um, it's uh, it's full of little surprises. Like, I'd say the overall arc of the book feels pretty clear throughout it's like maybe you don't know specifically where it's going but like the arc of this sort of story is 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 recognizable in a lot of contexts but it's uh like there's all sorts of little moments that catch you and um yeah yeah i mean it uh it kindled my interest in this author which really wasn't something i was expecting to happen uh, good. You know, well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah. one thing I should mention really quickly, when we first started talking about this novel and what, what book were we talking about in relationship to this? Was it, was it Octavia Butler or was it Neuromancer? Like, I don't even know. It, yeah, it was Parable of the Sower. Um, okay. I mentioned that Parable of the Sower could be read as what is called an Afro-pessimist text, which is just to say a sort of, um, well, a, a, an essentially pessimistic view of how race functions in the United States and perhaps in the world as a whole. And to say that it can't, that the race, that, uh, racial oppression and the hierarchies it creates and the suffering it creates can't necessarily be ameliorated or solved. And it might just be this sort of deep essence of the way we relate to each other. That's, that's my interpretation of Afro-pessimism at least. And I think Butler has a streak of that and Whitehead, has been called that, at least in the case of this book, by uh, some people who are smarter than me. So, yeah, it was Butler. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because, uh, like, when we were talking about it then, I was unclear that this was taking place in the 19th century. I thought it was taking place in the 21st century. Well, that's an interesting take, because, like, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, this novel very firmly and unambiguously grounds itself in the 19th century in the era of legalized slavery in the South. Um, and again, it starts at a pretty recognizable classic plantation setting. And then as, it mo as they move on the Underground Railroad, you run into ahistorical or alternate historical settings where there are different models of racial division and segregation or even sort of tepid attempts to ameliorate that. Uh, as they move away from, they start. Where do they start out? Is it South Carolina or Georgia? Georgia. Georgia. So they start out in Georgia. They go to South Carolina. They go to North Carolina. Uh, and you know what? Peter's read this more recently than me. I know they at least hit those three states moving northward. Yep. And um, then uh, there's Indiana and Tennessee as well. Right. So they do make it into the north briefly. And again, all of these different places they provide 
Well, the reason I'm bringing this up in relation to what you said is that uh, a lot of the, the, the circumstances they encounter could be read as allegories for much more recent uh, eras of race relations, uh, especially the ones that are sort of like an attempt to maintain segregation, but not with slavery or are like legally desegregated, but de facto sort of socially, economically segregated. So like, even though this is very much rooted in the 19th century, as they move through the speculative parts of the story, it, it, you know, it could be, it, it could be a very direct allegory for more contemporary things. So it's one of the most interesting aspects of this book. Um, sorry, that wasn't really a question, but, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That not everything has to be, uh, I mean, I, oh, go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to kickstart my mouth. So it's, it's better if you keep going. <laughs> well, I want to grind this a little bit in stuff that's a little bit closer to what we usually do, uh, and ask you, okay. When I told you about this book, and we start first talked about Colson Whitehead, you didn't think you'd even heard of him, and you certainly thought you hadn't read any of his work. And then as you read this book, you realized that you had read one of his. So which one was it? And tell us about that experience. Sure, sure. Uh, I, uh, like, like anybody who reads science fiction to excess, um, I, I had, well, uh, you know how Picasso had his uh, blue period? What's it, yeah. Picasso? Yeah, I had I had my zombie period, so I was definitely uh, hitting as many uh, zombie books as I possibly could, and I stumbled across a work that was clearly well regarded called Zone One, and I uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was very much about a disease similar to zombification, if not actual zombieism, like that. The whole what makes a zombie is a deep cut that we're not going to today, of course. But uh, the point is that I had read a book from this guy, enjoyed it, neatly put it into my shelf of of science fiction stories in a particular subgenre and never looked back. So uh, it's very interesting to me that I could I could read this author and appreciate him as like a like a, a schlock sci-fi author, basically, when it turns out that clearly he's recognized as something much more by the greater literary world. But in the context I was reading the book, like that wasn't that wasn't relevant or even important to me. And so going back now and and looking at this book and knowing it has the Pulitzer and approaching it from that angle is a completely different reading experience from the same guy. Right. Well, I think tracking Whitehead's career is very interesting because he had a, a very well-received debut when he was fairly young, I think right around 30, it was about 20 years ago, um, called The Intuitionists. And it's about elevator inspectors. And it has sort of, it's also sort of an alternate reality. Uh, I wouldn't really call it sci-fi, but it is sort of speculative about elevator inspectors in New York City. And that was sort of a big hit. I think it won the Penn Hemingway Award for first novel and a bunch of other things. And he's been established since then fairly well and fairly well respected or very well respected. But like Zone One, for instance, that you're describing, Zone One is like an extremely hipster zombie novel. <laughs> it's like yeah. a very arch, it's like a very arch, sardonic, uh, almost resolutely anti-plot driven take on zombie novels. And that's, it doesn't lack zombie novel thrills, but it is sort of like an inverted, uh, not to say perhaps deconstructive take on the zombie novel. And I, yeah, it feels like an homage in some ways. I mean, I, I like, I, I know so little about, uh, a whitehead that I feel, I feel silly even speculating, 
but I do sort of feel like this is somebody who has read a lot of fantasy and science fiction, and he wanted to tear it apart and put it together his own way, and Zone 1 was an attempt to do that. He definitely has. I know that for a fact. In fact, I just saw a blurb of his on uh, Ted Chang's new collection. Ted Chang, of course, is a hardcore multiple Hugo and Nebula award-winning sci-fi writer who has gained some mainstream cred. Uh, he did the short story that Arrival is based on, and I think he's pretty resolute about just doing short stories, but I saw a whiteheaded blurb that. Um, and for a genre writer to get a blurb from someone like Whitehead with that level of literary cred was a thing that didn't happen very much in the past, and I'm glad to see that it's happening now. But the point is, Colson Whitehead definitely reads a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. I want to ground this discussion a little bit, because I just said that, that Whitehead at times in his career has been very arch- uh, even hipster, and he has a lot of that playfulness in him. I'm going to read a little bit from the opening of this book, because uh, Underground Railroad, that is, because I want to give people an idea of what this book is like and what Whitehead can be like when he's not really being arch or sardonic or playful at all. Here's the opening. Of- is, is this a children leave the room moment? <laughs> I mean, I don't think any children listen to our pod, but I mean, this, you know, <laughs> you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here. All right, so this is the opening of Underground Railroad. The first time Caesar approached Cora about running north, she said no. This was her grandmother talking. Cora's grandmother had never seen the ocean before that bright afternoon in the port of Ouida, and the water dazzled her after her time in the fort's dungeon. The dungeon stored them until the ships arrived. The Dahomeyan raiders kidnapped the men first, then returned to her village the next moon for the women and children, marching them in chains to the sea two by two. As she stared into the black doorway, Ajari thought she'd be reunited with her father, down there in the dark. The survivors from her village told her that when her father couldn't keep the pace of the long march, the slavers stove his head in and left his body by the trail. Her mother had died years before. Cora's grandmother was sold a few times on the trek to the fort, passed between slavers for cowrie shells and glass beads. It was hard to say how much they paid for her in Ouida, as she was part of a bulk purchase 88 human souls for 60 crates of rum and gunpowder. The price arrived upon after the standard haggling in coast English. Able-bodied men and child-bearing women fetched more than juveniles, making an individual accounting difficult. The nanny was out of Liverpool and had made two previous stops along the Gold Coast. The captain staggered his purchases rather than find himself with cargo of singular culture and disposition. Who knew what brand of mutiny his captives might cook up if they shared a common tongue? This was the ship's final port of call before they crossed the Atlantic. Two yellow-haired sailors rowed Ajari out to the ship, humming. White skin like bone. All right, so I'm going to stop there. I think you get a good idea of what I'm saying here, which is this, uh, there's not, um, <clears throat> I wouldn't call that arch or hipster or sardonic. I w- you know, it, it's a bit, <laughs> it's dry because it's yeah. certainly just sort of a, a, uh, a very cold-blooded accounting of what happened, uh, but it's about a very severe topic that's hard to look in the face. And I think this is an example of a writer who has done a lot of game playing in his career, kind of shutting down a lot of the games and staring something singularly difficult and repulsive and painful in the face, that being the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in the United States. Um, so this is a different mode for him, and it's it's a mode that has established him as... Uh, kind of an untouchable literary force in a lot of ways. But I think, you know, his, his career has taken an interesting path um, to arrive at this point. Uh, you know, I'm going to put Pete on the spot because I'm not sure we discussed this beforehand. But Yay. like, 
<laughs> what what uh, what sci-fi influences are you seeing here? Like what what speculative fiction and fantasy influences would you guess? Like what does this remind you of at the very least? Uh, well, I let me start with one I'm feeling on very firm uh, ground on. Uh, the the man is clearly read Octavia Butler, um, but like, duh, right? I mean, if 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 you're uh, if you're writing an alternate history and and about uh, the slave trade and you're not reading Butler, I would have follow up questions. Um, I it's tough. Um, I think. Like when I read this, what I what I see is a blend of three things. Um, I see a blend of the alternate history novel, things like uh, Turtle Dove. Like Turtle Dove uh, is is very famous for a series of books that involve aliens invading just as World War II happens. So it's like you have a three-sided war about aliens siding with Nazis, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't think he was influenced that by that stuff, but I have a suspicion that he might have read it, if that makes any sense. I mean, maybe it does, that's... does, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I also, looking at this, feel like um, he's... Well... Okay, I don't. I don't feel like this is shelved anywhere near science fiction. So, like, what what I see in terms of of the narratives here is a combination of uh, well, straight up slave narratives and action movies. And I know that sounds bizarre, but I think I can defend it. So, what are the action movie influences you're seeing here? That is interesting. Okay, well, what what when you're looking at slave narratives, like uh, historically, have you have you have you read slave narratives like the the old style ones that they used to pass out to try and convince people slavery was bad? I actually have not. This is a fairly big blind spot for me. So no, okay. not at all. Okay. Well, I I have, and the reason I have is I had a I had a deep oh God. This sounds creepy, but I had a deep fascination with the Holocaust. Still do. And used to collect survivor stories and, you know, the, like books about that era. And as I began to collect those, I got very interested in things like the killing fields. And, well, I, I mean, it, it it occurred to me at one point that that slavery was a Holocaust, like in a number of locations. So I I began to get very interested in the in the the narrative history of slavery and started collecting uh, slave tracks, as it were, um, and when I started reading them over time, what I what I began to feel, and this is not based on scholarly anything. This is just based on one Midwestern dork reading old stories. Is that these stories were not a real attempt to tell the experience of the slave? They were an argument against slavery, and that's what they were generally narrowly tailored to do. So you would go out and you would find uh, or are like uh, organizations arguing against slavery would find deeply religious slaves who had a lot to say along those lines and then target those specific narratives at groups that were 
that were religious. Like that sort of thing. The idea was you were making an argument. There are these people who had these experiences and you would see what you could do to match the narrative to the people you're trying to convince. And I believe based on very little that that's what Colson Whitehead was trying to do here when he was talking about this stuff. And if you think about all the shit that's happened in the past couple of years, I mean, this this guy has a prophetic level of timing. Like, this is such a great book to come out in 2016. Uh, but his, it, it feels to me like this is a narrative designed to be consumable by a modern audience. Like, it is exciting. Like, Cora is, like, going through tunnels, doing the spy crap. She's going from location to location. You're hitting multiple places that people, that, that a modern audience can relate to. It's like, hey, I'm from South Carolina. What's that like? Oh, my God. Like, it, it feels to me like that's what he was trying to do with this. And I feel like I've been talking for a long time. Like, are you holding your head eating Tums based on what I'm saying or what's going on? No, I, I think you're making a series of really good points. Uh, I am almost certain. We could probably look up some interviews, but I'm, you probably did read a lot of those historical slave narratives as well as some of the more iconic novels about slavery like Nat Turner and uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'm sure that he's versed in that, I would guess. Um I think that's very sound, and I, and I think that what you're basically saying is taking that longstanding tradition of narratives about slavery and bringing it forward in a way that's legible for a contemporary audience by using more contemporary forms like the action movie. I buy that. I think that's the kind of thing that Whitehead has done elsewhere. And again, we could probably find some interviews and, and find out exactly what he was trying to do explicitly. But yeah, I think in the text itself, uh, that's all on display. Um, I... Hmm. What am I? What am I trying to process here? Uh, my brain's not working very well because the because the, the half hour I spent walking in the heat before coming here, folks. Sorry, you do have heat stroke. We'll cut yeah. you some slack, dude. Right? I, yeah. It was it was a weird weird afternoon, but um, I like Whitehead is a tough one for me to pin down in certain ways because like so I like this book as well. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether Peter and I like it because it did you know of the twenty first century. It's probably one of the most at this point, most respected, decorated American novels in the literary realm from this century. So who cares what we think? But like, well, and and like Butler, he wasn't trying to make us happy here. That wasn't the point. Oh yeah, no. So I think it's kind of a lot of my assessments I might make elsewhere are kind of irrelevant in this conversation. Again, also because the subject matter is hard for us to access, and so it's like there's a yeah. degree of deference I have here. On the other hand, like I said, I met Whitehead, so he's real to me on that level. I've read his other work uh, that is has a much different tone in a lot of cases. And so I try to process what he's doing. And one of the interesting things about Whitehead for me is that when I was first pitching my work, which of course is literary-ish and has a strong speculative element, as I've said many times on here, uh, I would I would compare myself in like pitching to agents and stuff. I was comparing myself to Whitehead because uh, he was just sort of someone I considered an influence, someone I looked up to, someone I saw as hashtag goals. And at some point, someone told me to stop doing that. <laughs> and they said, you know, he's... Like, that's just too untouchable of a comparison right now. And I think part of what they meant is like, well, you're not, you know, you're not going to write an epic about slavery, uh, nor should you. So it's an odd comparison. I, I, I guess I had a mind as like, I don't think it's an odd comparison because we're doing a literary speculative fiction. Uh, and also stylistically, even like not so much from the passage I just read, but his other work, which we might touch on at some point, like I had learned from his style and his use of language and the way that the kind of games he plays at the sentence level. Um, 
But again, so you, when, you're, when you're told, like, all of a sudden, this person that does seem relatively, does seem fairly real to you, whose work you followed for a while, you know, uh, and you're told, like, that suddenly they occupy this Olympus that you, um, is just so distant from what you're doing. It's, I'm not even, I'm not trying to make this book about me. I'm simply saying it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting case of tracking a career, uh, and how this book really kind of stands out alone in a way it's career. I think Thomas Chatterton Williams in his long review of this, which is great. Look up Thomas Chatterton Williams reviewing underground railroad on London review of books. Um, great essay goes in depth and one thing that he says is Whitehead's career prior to this was marked by an effort to write about black characters, but to do it in a way that broke the paradigm of black literature in the United States by taking the experiences of those characters out of the realm of extremes. It was not about extremes of suffering. Uh, and Williams and others read that as Whitehead rejecting, or at least trying to subvert, um, a lot of sort of the canon of, of black literature in the United States. And I, I think that's compelling and probably accurate. And also Underground Railroad is much more, it, it absorbs a lot of those classic archetypes because it is this epic narrative about slavery and attempting to escape from slavery. Um, so again, I, I, you know, he's, he's a hard one for me to track, like how I should think about how I should categorize his work. And I think that's in many ways the mark of a good ambitious writer. You shouldn't be easy to pin down. I wouldn't say Le Guin is easy to pin down either. Is is this long oh, God, monologue no. of mine making sense? Yeah, yeah, no, you're 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 nailing it, man. I it's um like there there's there's a lot going on here on a meta level as we're talking about this. And part of it, and I think we both sort of owned it is um is as fear of blundering into a bad place. Like this is this book is potentially a minefield of cancel culture. Yeah, pl please don't cancel us for being wrong about this book. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's also um, like the stakes are really high. Like we aren't talking like generally speaking, when we're when we're on this podcast and we're talking about colonialism, for example, like we're talking about space colonialism. Like there's a level of remove that we can we can sort of settle and feel comfortable in and talk around what's really happening. And I did not feel that in working with this book. Like this book was very deliberately designed to be as raw as possible. Uh, like not not like uh, I mean, it's it, I I. I'm saying this wrong. Like no, I, I think I think you're right. I think there's a lot of it, at least a, a great portions of it, and it jumps around a lot in location and and in what the characters are dealing with. So it, it varies, but a lot of it is unbelievably raw, graphic, disturbing, uh, relentless, and brutal. And I don't think yeah. you're wrong about that at all. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh well, I I the part I was missing is that it's purposeful, because I mean, like you could say the same thing about all of Rob Zombie's movies. Like they're very raw. It's just they aren't they aren't purposeful in the same way. They aren't they aren't telling you anything. They're not moving in a coherent direction. And I would say that there's uh, one of the things that really struck me here. And it's honestly like, okay, we're not supposed to compare you to to Whitehead message received, but uh, one of the things that the two of you seem to have in common, as I've I've read both of you, is that you both try to be a little bit sparing with your language. Like, like there's, there, 
with a 30 word sentence, you would look at it and say, well, how can I make it 15 and have the same impact? And I, I, I felt that between both of you. And I mean, that was striking to me because that's that's certainly not a common behavior of science fiction writers. And maybe that's very common in literature. I don't well, know. It is more common in literature, I would say, especially uh, MFA era, so, so post-war English language literature. And you're hitting the nail on the head. And I think I'm glad to hear you say that because Whitehead is someone that I have tried to learn from the level of sentence structure. So I'm glad that you saw that parallel. Um, but yeah, I mean, the way that you shape your sentences very carefully to be something that is both elegant that sounds conversational but also has an artfulness to it that's the kind of the constant balancing of uh kind of post-war mfa fiction and interestingly colson whitehead is one of the few writers in his generation i guess he counts as a gen xer like you uh he's close to your age um (laughs) i think one or two years older but doesn't really matter close to the same age uh and he interestingly is one of the few gen x or younger uh american literary novelist who does not have an mfa so he's not actually influenced by that culture. And in fact, one thing I happen to know about him, because I've heard him say it in person, is that he went to Harvard for undergrad. So obviously a fancy place to go to undergrad. Uh, but he said that he was not a lauded or decorated or even encouraged undergrad writer, that he was actually did not get into a lot of the workshops he applied to at undergrad. It kind of floated around the margins. He wasn't on the Harvard Advocate, the famous literary journal there or anything. He was just a dude going to Harvard who, after he got out, um, kind of taught himself to write, I think, in relative isolation. And that makes Whitehead very unusual uh, in the recent history of American letters because so much, of, so much of how literary writers develop is in years-long workshop settings, both in undergrad and graduate school. Um, so, you know, again, I'm kind of spiraling off into a different topic here. But I want to ask you something, actually, Pete. Well, a couple things. Okay, before sure. I ask you something, I want to say something based on what you were saying about uh, allegory and distance, because we, like I said, we talk about space empires, and we're usually pretty clear on, on what the uh, extrapolative part of the story in the sci-fi that we stu- that we look at is. We're clear on what it's allegorizing in the real world, and that's usually a lot of what we fasten onto. And Whitehead is doing this interesting double move of, on the one hand, you have high concept allegories for all kinds of different ways of managing race relations and managing racial hierarchies and enforcing those hierarchies, um, some of which he, he sort of made up conceptually out of his own imagination. They're not, they're, they're again, they're allegorizing maybe historical models of that, but they are not things that really happen in the history of like 19th century South Carolina, for instance. Right. Uh, and then some, and so that is, that is an allegory. We know we, we can kind of track what we think he's extrapolating from. We can kind of speculate about why he did that. And it's all relatively concrete because it is tied to the actual history of these things, um, even if it is imagining the exact circumstances. On the other hand, you have something embedded here, which is a very realistic, very historically recognizable kind of slave story. Uh, and, none, and a lot of that has zero element of allegory or extrapolation whatsoever. Uh, and they, they coexist in the same story, which is a really interesting move and one that makes it a very, uh, I think, very challenging in a good way to analyze this story. Um, and it gives us a lot of the frisson that we're profiting from here as analysts. That's kind of my commentary, but I want to ask you something, which is something you said to me when you're reading this book, something that has cropped up elsewhere, cropped up when we discussed, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, the movie recently it's cropped up elsewhere. You fastened on to the fact that this book is very cruel, which it certainly is at points or, or for long stretches. 
you you seem and I'm not I'm not pointing fingers and in fact I want it's you okay. to answer this outside the frame of this book. Actually, let's let's remove it the conversation here from this book so it's not about what you think about this novel. But just tell me in general, why do you find why do you think that you find yourself measuring and evaluating and in many cases judging the degree of cruelty in narratives because you seem to fasten onto that a lot. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, I believe that um, that we desensitize ourselves. And I think over, over the course of my life in this culture, I've watched people become desensitized to a lot of different things. Uh, the word fuck, for example. Fuck, 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 fuck. Nobody cares about it anymore. And personally, I'm fine with that particular small example. But I think cruelty is something that still has a lot of charge for some people, but it's possible for it to lose that charge. Cruelty is dangerous magic. And when it is used in something like a narrative or in uh, graphic arts, uh, it has, in general, a very affecting power. But there's a long-term cost to everyone when it's used. And that cost is we get a little more inoculated against the horrors of it. And so when a book is cruel, it damn well better have a reason for it. And it damn well be tailored to that purpose. And I like I, I'm alone on an island here. This isn't something I hear a lot, but it's something I firmly believe. And this book, I believe, is an example of appropriate cruelty. Like, people shouldn't be able to sit down for an enjoying read of a slavery no novel. It should be a razor across the eye. And this is, which is, I am 100% fine with. I'm, I'm a little more touch and go with AI. I think uh, Gladstone made some excellent points about why that cruelty was there. Um, I, I still feel like it was a little over the top, but he convinced me at least that it was purposeful, which is really at this point all I'm asking of people. That's a very good answer. Thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah. And I think it gives me a lot to think about as we go forward. Um, yeah, I, I totally hear you on that. I, I'm probably a little bit more cold-blooded about some of this than you are. Maybe that reflects my desensitization, but I'm glad that you're <laughs> sensitive to it. Uh, and I'm glad that you're interested in how it functions in narrative. And I, I completely agree that in the case of the Underground Railroad, we have an example of a novel that has very much earned the right to elaborate on its own cruelty, uh, you know, based, both based on it's seriousness about a serious subject matter based on the skill of the writer. Um, in fact, the more I think about this book, I think the more I like it. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've read it. You generously offered to read it, um, you know, as another step in our let's discuss literary fiction that intersects with what we do series, which I'm sure we'll keep doing in various ways. Oh, yeah. Well, a um, lot of what we're doing here is finding common ground, and we're not going to find common ground if I don't read some books too, right? No, that's fair. Yeah. In fact, one thing that I think is interesting. Uh, well, that, that I think <laughs> continues to ironize my, uh, contentious relationship with the literary market, with my, with my novel, 
uh, you know, I went to the bookstore today to say goodbye to my favorite bookstore here, and the new paperback releases of literary fiction, there is a lot of speculative literary fiction on that table. Now, why, when there's all of this speculative literary fiction coming out where there's, like, some high-concept thing about climate change or, like, uh, some of it was more imaginative than others. There was one about, like, I guess I won that won a major prize recently about like uh, Japan cutting itself out from the outside world and the young people become very weak and Japan's disproportionate population of the elderly becomes very vigorous and strong. <laughs> like, and and that's, that's more imaginative than like another climate change narrative. But like a lot of that out there, why, why is that the case? But it's also very hard to talk to editors and publishers like to persuade them of uh, certain kinds of, of sort of speculative literary fiction? Great question. I don't know. I was just saying to my buddy Eric today that I don't speak the lexicon of contemporary literary fiction. Um, and in many cases, I don't feel like I'm missing out a lot by not speaking that lexicon, although I have to learn it a little bit more passively to market my work, I think. But uh, to return to this novel, this is a book, The Underground Railroad, that uh, this is one of the more sterling examples of what our current literary fiction scene can produce uh, on so many levels. And I think for the purposes of what we're talking about, it's really important to note Whitehead arrived there via a career of working through genre fiction in a lot of cases and uh, including science fiction and used the, brought all of those tools to bear and made this really magisterial uh, piece of sort of literary fiction that is ironclad in its its credibility in the literary community. And I have to say, uh, the specific subject matter aside, like I wish that that would be more of a signal to more people in the literary community to like just become comfortable with things that you associate with genre fiction. Like just let it let it let your guard down a little bit. Like be more vulnerable to everything good that genre fiction can do for you. That's my plea. And I think that this is this book, for all of its brutality and all of the immense seriousness that its subject matter requires in any treatment. Um, it, it, you know, it, one good takeaway, one, one warmer takeaway would be to say like, I, I wish people would look at this and kind of learn the lessons of it and say like, yeah, we should encourage writers to be imaginative and high flown, but still have what we consider a degree of literary aesthetic seriousness. And the two can very much coexist. And this is one of the best examples from the 21st century of them coexisting in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I'd need to look a lot more to get a more representative sample, but I certainly agree that he did something extraordinary here. Cool. I, I have a, uh, I have a fun little side journey I would like to take with you if you're up for it, Connor. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I went out, um, I asked myself the question, what would, uh, why, maybe I need to ask the question again more clearly, uh, uh, alternate histories, why are they grouped with science fiction? Why was this excellent book given a number of science fiction awards when facially it does not seem to be science fiction to me? It is a it is a description of an alternate past, which doesn't seem as forward looking as traditional science fiction. Did that did that occur to you, Connor? Well, I think that again. I have to avoid becoming a broken record on this topic, but like every time we have these conversations, we, we, we run into the problem of genre and the way that genre problematizes itself in yes. out there in the reading public and the way that it creates divisions that can sometimes be very fruitful. I mean, you know, having categories you can access can help clarify a lot of the swirling, <laughs> uh, you know, things out there that you have to ascribe some meaning to, but it can also, 
lead to unnecessary oppositions, unnecessary foreclosings, unnecessarily unnecessary walling off of things. And do I have a great answer for that? No. I mean, the, well, the more I've, good. I discovered something interesting here. Um, I went out and uh, actually asked Google the question, is alternate history sci-fi? And um, I stumbled across as my first hit uh, an article by a friend of the show that I just emailed you. Who's it by? Joe Walton. Oh, Cool. So, yeah, so Joe Walton explored the question, is alternate history science fiction? And, like, ultimately her conclusion was beats the hell out of me. Uh, you know, it's something we need to continue to argue about. But one of the things she did say that I found very interesting is that if you are a science fiction writer and you write alternate history, they're going to put it in the science fiction section. But if you are not and you write an alternate history, they'll put it out in the literature section. It's just, it's, it's a, yeah. yeah. So it, it literally, that, that is literally what it turns on. It's just how the publishers think they can market it. That's it. Like, we have a lot of these conversations and they do mean something. And I want to be clear here. Like, academics do study genre. In fact, in grad school, I had a lot of conversations about genre that I didn't really even care to be having. So it is, it is a, it is a real <laughs> thing worthy of study and worthy of discussion. But the problem we run into when we have the conversations of the show is what we discover is so much of this just hinges, hinges on marketing. And that's a great example. I mean, again, because what Whitehead is doing, Whitehead is doing something that transcends a lot of categories, which is really one of the noblest uh, goals that a writer can have is to sort of not only synthesize different things, but transcend those, those boundaries. And he's done that. Uh, you know, sort of who cares how it's marketed? It happened to be marketed as... Um, as a sort of prestigious literary fiction because that's his previous career and he has that credibility and good for him and good for the novel. Uh, if this had appeared as an alternate history story f from Tor books, for instance, um, would the reception have been different? I mean, certainly yes. And that's interesting to consider because it's like, you know, his, his writing style would, would resonate differently among a primarily sci-fi audience. Lots of things would be different, but the, the ultimate point sure. here is that the, the, the work itself exists independent of all of that, and that's so important to keep in mind. Well, I think that's a pretty thorough, well, I don't know if it's thorough, but it's, it's a good primer on a complex and difficult book that Pete and I can only really touch the surface on, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I've probably said everything I feel the need to say about this. I think you should go check it out, everyone. It's a, it's a good one. It's a hard one emotionally, but it is a very, very fine novel. Pete, is there anything that you want to talk about before we log off here? Uh, no, no, I think that's that's an excellent place to leave it. I'm pretty happy with our results here today. Okay, cool, cool. Well, thanks for your patience, everyone. Um, remember, Dune Month is coming up in August, so refresh your memory of Dune, uh, and we will be checking with you again soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>